Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. How can Attorney General Dave Yost of Ohio say he will not seek charges in the death of Arthur Keith at the hands of a police officer when he knows that the investigators didn't even talk to the witnesses? Amazing. One of the things we'll be talking about today on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Jen Cahoon and Layla Atassi. We got some rip snorting stories to talk about. Let's begin. What was the explanation from Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost's office about why no charges will be filed against a police officer who killed a Cleveland teenager by shooting him in the back? Layla, this rises to outrage because the investigation was not solid and Dave Yost is standing behind it. I thought this guy meant something for justice. This is a flabbergasting story. There really is no justice here. You know, the AG's office had convened a grand jury to hear this case and they decided that the officer who shot and killed 19-year-old Arthur Keith in the back had acted reasonably. The CMHA officer, James Griffiths, had approached Keith who was in a van parked in the King Kennedy Public Housing Complex. This was back in November. Griffiths ordered him to step out and shot Keith after getting out of the van. He collapsed some distance from the officer. Cleveland police said the day of the shooting that a pre- that preliminary information indicated that Keith pointed a gun at Griffiths. Witnesses told Cleveland.com that, that, that Griffiths shot Keith in the back after Keith had turned to run away. The medical examiner's office confirmed that Keith was shot in the back. They did find a gun on the scene that they say had Keith's DNA on it, but the witnesses said that they didn't see Keith point a gun at the officer. Many of these witnesses were children attending an after-school program with the Boys and Girls Club, and none of them were interviewed by investigators. So, All right, so, so stop, stop right there. That, that, that's the, the astounding part of this, it right? Is. So. So so we we discover that yesterday our reporters talked to the witnesses say nobody talked to me and we call Dave Yost's office and they say, oh, we didn't do the investigation. That was Cleveland police like it's not their fault. They took it to the grand jury. They stood up yesterday to say, you know, there's just not there's no cause here. And and yet now they're deflecting, saying, well, we didn't do the investigation. That's not us. You know, they had the audacity to call me yesterday to complain that our story failed to mention that they found a gun at the scene with Keith's DNA on it, which they were right. That should have been in the story. And we added it. But they had the audacity to call and complain about that when they took a half investigation to the grand jury. This is inexcusable. Absolutely. Justice and service. Without okay, go the, ahead. Without the testimony of those key witnesses, that means the grand grand jury heard only the police's version of events. And even those don't comport with reality because this young man was shot in the back. Someone please explain the mechanics of that to me. How does one point a gun with either hand at an officer and end up getting shot in the back? This is honestly one of the most outrageous, unjust outcomes of a police shooting case I've ever heard. 
I wish it would garner national attention. I wish people would fill the streets in protest. And, and I hope that the Department of Justice does descend upon CMHA police with the mightiest consent decree we've ever seen. So at the very least, they're forced to wear body cameras, for heaven's sake. This, the- or or they could do a civil rights investigation. People ought to see Dave Yost's face when they think about this outrage. He's responsible for this. You know, there's a there's another problem here. It, we have a county prosecutor who's supposed to be in charge of homicides. But as soon as Michael O'Malley got into office, he changed the policy so that he would never have any responsibility for prosecuting police in in uh, shootings. So they turn it over to Dave Yost's office. In this case, Cleveland police do the investigation. They're refusing to answer why they didn't interview the witnesses. And then it goes to Dave Yost, who we have no real control over, who who does his lousy job and doesn't get to the bottom of it. There's no accountability for Clevelanders on how this went down. And that is why there's a move to put police discipline under the civilian control. This is exactly why, because you cannot trust public officials like Dave Yost to do their job. Here's the other thing. How many times when when we've talked to prosecutors over the years about cases, they say, hey, hey, this is a question for the jury to decide. Yet Dave Yost, time and time again, doesn't allow a case like this to go to a jury because they won't start the prosecution process with charges. They say it's the grand jury, but we all know Everybody's always said a grand jury would indict a ham sandwich if a prosecutor asked them to. That's right. That's right. So in Keith, in, in this case, Keith's family is calling on the Department of Justice to investigate. And the family's attorneys are, are criticizing the lack of transparency by CMHA police, which didn't release any surveillance footage of the shooting or even really answer any questions about the existence of that footage for months and months and months. They're suspicious of the chain of custody of the videos and whether they were secure. And most outrageously, of course, you know, the fact that these investigators didn't interview these three witnesses who saw the shooting. It, it, it really it's a travesty of justice run by our attorney general. I should point out we had known from the beginning that there was not actual video of the shooting, that the the only video that's out there, which is really hard to see, shows Keith falling after he shot when you know we don't run video of people when they're they're shot and die uh but so there was never video there were cameras cmh had cameras that could have had good video but they were all broken so they're not i mean people kept arguing about the video but but our sources have told us you're not going to see anything there that doesn't solve it the witnesses are the key and cleveland police homicide detectives didn't even bother to interview them that's right You are listening to This Week in the CLE. Why do voting rights advocates worry that a provision in the new state budget will be used to stop beneficial cooperation between elections officials and such groups as the NAACP and the League of Women Voters? Jane Cahoon, Bob Cup says, no, 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 that wasn't our intention. All is well. Somehow, <laughs> I'm not feeling confident about that. Right. Me neither. And a- actually, that was Matt Huffman, not oh, Matt Huffman, Bob sorry. Huffman in the Senate. But yeah, They're the but... same guy, just with different names. <laughs> so here, all you have to do is look at the language in this provision, okay? And you can judge for yourself. It says that no public official that is responsible for administering or conducting an election in this state shall co- collaborate with or accept or expend any money from a non-governmental person or entity for any costs or activities related to voter registration, voter education, voter identification, get out the vote, 
absent voting, election official recruitment or training, or any other election related purpose. And there are a couple exceptions, like, you know, using a building to conduct an election. But like, does that seem pretty emphatic to you? It certainly does um, to me and to voting rights groups who have said, you know, depending on how this is enforced, it could it could bar their work with local and state election officials to to provide the public with like basic, you know, election information, like voting rules and election dates and voter registration. So, why are lawmakers doing this? You you might wonder, um, because they don't want a repeat of 2020, and that's when uh, Secretary of State Frank LaRose and county elections officials accepted more than a million dollars from Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg to pay for elections administration support. And we know they all love to hate, you know, big tech and so forth. So uh, Matt Huffman, as I said, insists that legislators did not intend to block routine voter outreach. He said they're trying to prevent private organizations with political agendas from manipulating the results of an election, you know, by directing resources toward Republican or Democratic areas. Now, Frank LaRose, what does he say about this? In, in my opinion, he's he's dodging the tough questions about this. He would not agree to an interview with Andrew Tobias, but his spokesman issued a statement basically saying, oh, they appreciate the concerns of lawmakers and voting groups, but surely it was not the intent of the legislature to criminalize, you know, this voter outreach, you know. And, um, but once again, I say, look at look at the language. Andrew laid out a bunch of different out, outreach efforts that LaRose has bragged about, like coordinating with voter groups, you know, to prevent people from being purged, um, you know, promoting registration and poll worker recruitment and partnering with black barbershops and salons and craft breweries to, um, you know, promote voting and recruiting lawyers and CPAs to work as poll workers. I mean, it goes on and on the things that that could be affected by this. The the yeah, if this ever went to court, if say somebody blocked the NAACP or the League of Women Voters from working with election officials, and it went to court, the intent does matter. The the court would consider what they're saying about that's not our intent, but but that doesn't mean it won't be tried. If if the League of Women Voters started to help register more voters in urban areas, you could see the the Republicans worried about that turnout using this law to block it. They, they, they wrote this way more liberally than they should have for the specific cause they were aiming for. I have no doubt that we'll be talking about this and the enforcement of this sometime soon, maybe next year, certainly in 2024 (laughs) when the presidential race is going on. God forbid they should be encouraging people to vote or register to vote. I mean, that's horrific, isn't it? Well, I just sarcasm. It's written so over the top. And for them to say, oh, no, that's not what it's intended for. Then they should have written it more narrowly. We'll have to see how it goes. Now, it's part of the budget bill, right? Right. And uh, there were voter groups that urged Governor Mike DeWine to veto this before he signed the budget. But he did not do uh, that. The Ohio Voter Rights Coalition talked about all this significant programming it does with local elections boards and the Secretary of State's office. And it basically said this unvetted language appears to prohibit any and all collaborations 
between right. non, you know, All anyway. Right, but my, my question about being in the budget bill, the budget bill is a two-year budget. Does this stuff go away at the end of the budget or is it enshrined in law forever, even though it was part of a two-year budget bill? I think it's it's part of the law forever. I don't wow, think it so, like expires. Such a bogus way to do business. This state, yeah, <laughs> these I know. guys just completely. Well, you know what? That's one where somebody ought to sue under the single subject uh, provision and and force the Supreme Court to deal with it. You are listening to this week in the CLE. How's it going for all the state workers in Columbus who are having to show up again for work after working from home during the pandemic? Jane Cahoon, lots of people are suddenly back in the office. Even we are on occasion. What's uh, what's the word for the state workers? Is it all dusty and filthy or do they keep the offices <laughs> yeah. clean? Well, supposedly they've deep cleaned everything, but this is not only offices in Columbus, but Cleveland and Akron offices that are managed by the Ohio Department of Administrative Services. They, it's a phased in return that began this week, and they're going to have their employees back full time by September. So about 18,000 employees have been working from home since March 13th, 2020, as we know, when the pandemic when the pandemic really took hold, um, they're, they're bringing them back sort of by floor or area of, of a building. You know, they're doing some hybrid schedules and allowing some employees to continue to do some work from home. I guess each agency can decide, you know, when they return to the office and how many are in the office at any given time. But, uh, you know, most of these buildings have been outfitted with ventilation and air filtering systems and, They've um, they have the elevator cars, you know, uh, sanitized with that ionization type of air sanitizing equipment, and they're limiting the elevators to four people. They've stepped up the janitorial services. They're sanitizing a couple times a day, and uh, keeping the restrooms really clean, and you know, keeping the door handles, you know, everything clean and. People who are not vaccinated are supposed to wear a face covering and others can can choose what they want to do. So I think, you know, like like us and, and many other private businesses, the state has learned some lessons from this extended work at home time. I mean, the union, the Ohio Civil Service Employees Association, has been surveying its employees and finding that a lot of them really do kind of prefer the remote work they've you know more people say they're more productive and they save time commuting there's less office politics and you know they they can achieve a better work-life balance so we'll see how this all plays out i i was a little bit surprised that they're returning so so late i, I yeah. you know m many offices people are started returning two months ago and I was yeah. just taken aback that Ohio was so late, but I guess at the state house, you know, the lawmakers offices, those people have been back. They didn't even wear masks during the pandemic though. So, well, and clearly attorney D general Dave Yost has been out to lunch because if he'd been at work, maybe they would have done a better job with the Keith investigation. <laughs> we discussed earlier. Another chance to jab Dave Yost. There you go. <laughs> well, I just, I, I still can't believe that, that when we had an earlier conversation, you're listening to This Week in the CLE.
How many more guns did Cleveland police seize in the first half of this year than in all of last year? Leila Tassi, we knew guns were proliferating. I don't think we knew it was this many. I know. This is stunning, actually. Through the first six months of 2021, Cleveland police confiscated nearly double the number of guns that were seized in all of 2020. As as of the end of June... Officers confiscated more than 1,700 guns in the city. The total for 2020 was about 950. This really shores up the city's theory that the proliferation of guns is is the major factor driving this record-breaking violence the city has suffered this year and last year. Cleveland recorded 88 homicides in the first six months of, of 2021, up from 63 over the same period in 2020. And violent crime involving guns is up 47 percent at nearly 400 cases compared to about 200 a year ago. Cleveland police are trying their best to manage this problem with special units dedicated to violent crime, which I thought this was really interesting. Even a unit that initially was set up to enforce COVID-19 health and safety regulations like mask wearing and social distancing and capacity limits in bars, that has been converted into a violent crime detail. And that unit confiscated 150 guns in May and June. And another initiative, Operation Legend, was launched last year, and it involves a task force working with federal authorities and state and county officers. This year, it has led to the confiscation of 260 guns and 244 felony arrests. The easy access to guns and the sheer number of them in circulation has just made it so much more likely that a gun will be used to settle conflict. And then again, in retaliation for that, the city is begging for relief from this problem in the form of some kind of meaningful federal gun control legislation. So I think that was sort of the the point of this uh, news conference yesterday to to illuminate these these really stunning statistics. Yeah, it, it with the federal and the state laws prohibiting Cleveland from doing a whole bunch of things it wants to do with guns, they have to rely on ATF and other other right. federal agencies to investigate how the guns get onto the street. Clearly, there's gun trafficking going on. There's just too many guns out there. Somebody's making a lot of money on this. So where are they? Where where are the investigations of the sources of the guns? Where's the U.S. Attorney's Office on this? If you've handcuffed the city and said, well, you can't investigate it because you can't get any of the information and you can't pass laws, then where are the people who are supposed to do this? I haven't seen any big gun trafficking indictments. Have you? No, I haven't. And that would be a terrific follow for this story, honestly. I mean, they've seized hundreds and hundreds of guns. You would think through their tracing, they could figure out how they got into the street, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. figure out who the sources are and go arrest them because somebody's making money on this, this mayhem and bloodshed. That's right. Uh, You really have to feel for, for a city that is so handcuffed while its citizens are dying in large numbers. Um, It's, it's shameful that the feds are not coming in and doing their job. Mm -hmm. You're listening to this week in the CLE. How is First Energy deciding how much money it will give to its customers as it repays the cash it collected through the decoupling provision of the very corrupt House Bill 6? Jane Cahoon, it's great that they're repaying the money, but what a wacky system for deciding how to do it. Yeah, I'm not sure I fully understand this, but they have decided and the PUCO has signed off on this to give these one-time refunds to their customers in August. It's going to total more than $27 million 
for money that they collected for 13 months starting in January 2020, as well as interest. But there are a few factors that are going to determine the amount of the refunds. It's going to depend, on, number one, on which subsidiary people use. Uh, the, and the refunds are going to be based not on how much they paid for these decoupling charges, but how much power they use in in August, according to the PUCO. I don't know if these examples help, but a residential customer who uses a thousand kilowatt hours of electricity next month would get a refund of eight dollars and ninety five cents if they're an Ohio Edison customer, thirteen dollars and nineteen cents if they use Toledo Edison, and sixteen dollars and eighteen cents if they use um, Cleveland Electric Illuminating Company. So well, um, let me ask you this ahead. though, because they collected this for 13 months. They know exactly what each of us paid. Why not just give that back? Why why peg it to something you do in the future? Why not just give us the money we paid back? I don't get it. Yeah, I don't, I as I said, I don't really get it either, but we, we should explain because you you mentioned the very corrupt House Bill 6 that this decoupling charge was was part of that. And of course, House Bill 6 is now at the center of this massive bribery investigation by the feds. And, you know, after months and months of dithering about this corrupt law, the legislature finally did this partial repeal of it. And that includes the decoupling position and uh, provision. I'm sorry. That it basically guaranteed First Energy at least $978 million of revenue. And that was based on an unusually high demand year, 2018. So they could collect that even in years when demand was down. Uh, so I, apparently this year, if this provision had remained, they could have collected an estimated $102 million more from ratepayers, uh, according to Attorney General Dave Yost, your favorite guy today. Um, earlier this year, Yost reached a deal with them that going forward, they, you know, they're not going to use this decoupling thing, but then the that didn't affect the this twenty six million that that First Energy had already collected from customers. So that's that was part of this repeal, and that's why they're collecting the yeah, refunds. I, so I, I still mean, didn't it, answer your question, but, but that's, well, it it just makes no sense to me why they wouldn't just pay us our money back. And and look, HB six was the was just a gift to First Energy. One. There was a billion dollars to subsidize nuclear plants that they that was coming. And then there was this almost another billion dollars for them where they showed no need for it. They showed no evidence they should get it. And, you know, they, they spent 60 million dollars that was used for bribes to get a two billion dollar return. I still marvel that Bill Seitz kept trying to preserve this like it was a good deal for Ohio. They basically agreed to steal two billion dollars from us and give it to this utility. It's the stinkiest, <laughs> stinkiest of stinky deals, but they're messing it up again by not just giving us the money we paid back. It seems like it should be so simple, but no. And of course the PUCO goes along with it because they go along with anything First Energy seeks. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is the proposal to put a civilian board in charge of Cleveland police discipline likely to make the ballot after all? Leila Atassi, this is a much more urgent matter given all the other stuff that's been going on. And Indeed. I should introduce Aisha Hardaway into this conversation because there's news this morning 
that her resignation from the consent decree monitoring board has now been rejected because mm. of community outrage. Breaking news. That's that's incredible. So a couple weeks ago, Citizens for Safer Cleveland turned in their petitions for this initiative and uh, were 384 valid signatures short of the 6,270 that they needed to make the ballot. And yesterday, they turned in an additional pile of 3,200 to make up for it. So unless they collected these signatures in Columbus by mistake, I would say that they do have a pretty good shot of making the ballot here. But again, you know, anything can happen because they turned in almost 13,000 signatures the first time and less than half of those were from Cleveland residents. So we'll find out in the coming days as the Board of Elections works to validate those signatures, but it's got a, a very good chance. And so to remind listeners, this measure is being pushed by Citizens for Safer Cleveland, which includes Black Lives Matter Cleveland the NAACP Cleveland and Stand Up for Ohio, their goal is to reform police accountability and oversight by asking for increased authority within the Civilian Police Review Board. As it is, the city's police chief and public safety director can just disregard recommendations on officer discipline from the Civilian uh, Review Board. Under this measure, the Office of Professional Standards, which investigates citizen complaints against officers, would not be overseen by the safety director, but instead the Civilian Police Review Board, which makes disciplinary recommendations to the chief. And then the chief and the public safety director would still retain the power to issue discipline, but the board could overrule any disciplinary decision. And then separately, the Community Police Commission, set up through the consent decree, would be the ultimate and final authority in police discipline. So a complainant could ask it for review if they find an officer's punishment to be insufficient. So we're right now taking a deeper dive into how these kinds of measures are working in other cities where they've been instituted and what kinds of pitfalls they face, especially as far as the police union is concerned, because, you know, they 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 would never be happy with something like this. <laughs> well, I, I it, this has been interesting as this thing has picked up steam, the traditionalists and the people in power, the administration, the police chief, they're all against this. They say we, we would lose our ability to to control our police department, to manage our police department. But then you have cases like Arthur Keith, where the police department is not doing its job. They did right. a terrible investigation. They didn't interview witnesses. And you sit back and think, well, what what we're doing is not working. People are really dissatisfied with how the police do their discipline. So they want to change. I mean, what 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 surprises me when I hear from the people arguing, oh, my, oh, this this would be a disaster. How how could we ever manage our offices when we have a bunch of civilians that don't understand us in charge? The answer is, well, people are so dissatisfied with the poor job you're doing that they want change. And they're the voters. They're the people who employ you. You would think they would try to get ahead of that instead of just going around saying it's a bad idea. I'm betting this passes in a big, big way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We also know, remember that uh, the we we discovered that that the former safety director, Mike McGrath, was failing to adequately discipline officers. And that was after the consent decree was already implemented. So so I think that the time is is right for this kind of thing. And I agree. I think I think it will pass. I think people are ready for this. And uh, I don't think it will. It will. uh, I mean, I don't know. The union opposition might be strong, but voters will will have their say. Yeah, but this is the union that kept trying to get the the killer of Tamir Rice back on the force. I don't right. think they have a whole lot of credibility in Cleveland <laughs> neighborhoods. Well, look, one of the reasons I asked for that the review of how this works nationally is because I I don't know that this can work. I mean, maybe 
maybe what the chief and others say is correct, that if you have a civilian review board that has ultimate authority on discipline, the system breaks down. But so, so I can't wait to see what we find, but clearly what we're doing isn't working. And I'm surprised that the chief and the city council, we should mention the city council, they're supposed to do this kind of thing, aren't, aren't getting active in it. And doesn't city council have a public safety committee and a public safety committee chair? Where are they? Yeah, right. Where are they on the Keith investigation? Where are they on this? Where are they on the Aisha Hardaway resignation? She, she ended up resigning because she made some comments, general comments about police use of force in a couple of interviews. And, and the head of it decided that was inappropriate. The community has spoken with outrage. And today he's listened to them and rejected her resignation. We'll have to see if she joins. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. All right, some lively conversation today. And Laura wasn't even here. Usually when Laura's here, it's even more fiery. So we'll have to wait and see. Uh, I should say uh, we're going to take a two-week break after tomorrow. We will not be recording the podcast for two weeks. We'll be back on Monday. The, I think it's the 26th. Uh, the reason is we got to give people time off. It's vacation <laughs> season. Everybody needs some mental health. It's good for the soul. So we're going to take advantage of the, the great Cleveland summer weather, uh, and we'll be back two weeks after tomorrow. But come back tomorrow for a roundup of the week's news. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast.